0: We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening. Tonight's scripture passage is Matthew 6, 5 through 15 you'd like to take a moment to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. Again, that's Matthew 6, 5-15. And if you would please stand if you're able as we read that word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others.
1: Well, good evening, uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, Mike did not mention the fact that uh, he and I started this service together, so uh, he was too modest to say that, but uh, yeah, Mike and I, um, back in 2004, literally, just, it was the two of us, and we, um, we were the ones that started this worship, with a, with a bunch of other people helping us, but uh, we were the two that were on paid staff at Redeemer that did that, so um, I would encourage you to, uh, not for that reason alone, but just to, to go to the Warner's house and, uh, and meet Mike. Um, so we have a ton of these storybook Bibles uh, over here. And if, if any of the kids that didn't come down uh, to get the bags earlier want to get a storybook Bible, we're going through the Jesus storybook Bible in our sermon series. Or an adult could come down and get one too if they wanted to. Um, but this is a great Bible. It is... Um, it is... Um, tagline every story whispers his name so it's all about jesus it shows how every story in the bible and it starts in the beginning and goes throughout the whole sweep of scripture and they all point to jesus um so this gives us the the big story of reality i think it's the best story there is out there i think we've got the best story on the market christians aren't always the best people but we're carrying around the best story and so um we should tell that story and um it's basically, you know, it starts with, there's this one God, but that one God is three persons. That's, that's a really important part of the story. And that three-personal God uh, said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. And so the two uh, of us reflected the three of them. There's a reason that God made Adam and Eve, and uh, not just Adam. Because uh, the, the two-ness reflects the, the interpersonal nature, the relational nature of God. And so an essential part of Christianity that makes it very unique among all the religions of the world is that we believe that, that God uh, made us for communion, for relationship with Him, and that we were made to walk with God in the cool of the garden, and we were made to talk to God. That we can actually talk to God as a conversation, not just heaping up a bunch of empty words, uh, not a lot of just ritual, um, saying things over and over again, but... Uh, that we were made for this uh, creative relationship with God. Where we spread his creativity around the world in relationship with him. But the, the, the big problem with humanity is that we don't do that much anymore. We, we have cut ourselves off from God. It's like we said to our, our dad, you know, you're toxic and I'm not going to ever talk to you again. And I know that a lot of us have had dads that have been toxic and it's hard to call God father. So I recognize that. Um, that it's very hard to call God Father for a lot of us. I mean, none of us have perfect fathers, but Jesus is trying to rehabilitate our view of the Father and say so the Father is like this. So when you pray to the Father, think of the Father in this way. You don't have to heap up a bunch of phrases for God. You can speak very very simply to God. Use very simple words that a child would use and speak to God as your, as your Father. And so... Um, We didn't just cut off God. The scary thing is we cut off God and then we pretended like we're still in relationship with God. And so we get all of the different religious manifestations of that. All the ways that we perform. So much of religion is performative. Where we're just acting out uh, in front of other people uh, our piety. It's really about what we're showing to other people instead of a real relationship with God. So I want to look at the way that, um, that Jesus came and he turned performance, prayer into relational prayer, performative prayer, and if you see this, it's uh, How to Pray, and it's got these three guys, and um, they're all praying very holy ways, but one of them's got one eye open looking around the other two guys praying, Uh, it's a great picture of performative prayer, and they're like raising their hands in the air, which is true of, uh, of a lot of Christians, I mean, who has not acted that way, so... God's secret rescue plan was to send his son and, and transform performative prayer into relational prayer, where we're talking to our Father. So, performative for prayer. I love how when Jesus is teaching about prayer, he starts with, okay, here's the, here's the problem with y'all. Um, when you pray, you're often like hypocrites. This is verse 5. Uh, when you pray, uh, do not be like the hypocrites, who love to stand in the synagogues and on street corners, I think he's almost going over the top there. Like that, there probably weren't many people actually standing on street corners praying out loud. But just to make fun of them a little bit, you know, uh, as an ironic exaggeration, um, he is saying that we often are so crazy hypocritical in our prayers that it's as if we're standing on a street corner. Like imagine some guy at five points where Stratford, you know, hits uh, Country Club and First Street and that big intersection there. Imagine there's some guy out there. Um, like with uh, this extra super holy voice. That's what the, that's what, uh, the story of the Bible says. An extra super holy person with an extra super holy voice. And this, this guy's at five points. Like with his hands up and his eyes are closed. He's just shouting out a prayer to God. Um, that's, it's almost like a joke. Jesus, Jesus is like, you might as well be doing that. When you're praying performatively. For um, that you're like a hypocrite. And now the word hypocrite we use so much today, um, and a lot of people accuse Christians of being hypocrites. The thing is that Christians, that word came from Jesus. So he made up the word hypocrite. I mean, it was a word. It was a Greek word for a mask. So if you've you've ever seen Greek drama, they wear those big white masks that are like larger than life. They're big old face. And it'll have like a frown on it or a smiley face on it. That's the word for hypocrite. And so Jesus, being the creative uh, genius that he was, he took the word for a mask that um, you know somebody in Greek drama would use, and he's like, you might as well be wearing a big mask. I mean, imagine a Halloween mask of like of like a preacher, like somebody's wearing around you know in Halloween the trick or treating they got this mask on of a preacher, like in prayer, you know, their eyes closed, like a very serious expression. Um, that's what he's saying. Your, pray- your praying is so performative. You might as well be wearing a mask of a preacher praying. When you pray, because you love for to have other people hear you, you love to use your extra, super holy voice and have other people hear you. It's kind of like pretending uh, if you're married or if you have if you're dating that you and your um, your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse. It's like pretending that you're really connected, like you're really, really close. So when you're at a party. You know, you're really, they're acting, your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend is acting like they're really close to you and maybe flirting or being really kind to you, saying really nice things to you. But then as soon as you go back to the house, they're really mean. He's like, when you, when you are doing that, it's incredibly confusing and disorienting. You're pretending to love your father, but you have no connection with him. Don't pray that way, he says. Don't pretend. The worst thing you could possibly do is to lie to yourself about the way you're praying. Be honest. Be very simple and sincere. He says, do not heap up empty phrases in verse 7. Phrases for other people to hear. Not for God to hear. So you've got to be really careful about this when we pray. Just think about how you pray. Think about the words you use. Uh, This is again from the story Bible. She says, um, the author... She says, extra super holy people wanted everyone to say, look at them. They're so holy. God must love them best. Jesus says, uh, if if that's your motivation, so if you're praying to be seen by other people, like virtue signaling prayer, if you're doing that, if that's your motivation, then that's going to be your reward. If that's what you're aiming for and you get it, then you're satisfied. You got your reward. You've got other people to think well of you, and you've got zero of the real Father. He says, truly I say to you, verse 5, they have received their reward, which is to be admired. To be admired by other people. So are you praying in such a way that you're receiving your reward because other people see that you're praying? And they recognize you as a pious woman or a pious man. Jesus says, go to your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father alone. Of course, that's, a, that's not the only way we pray. Because then he teaches us to pray Our Father, so we're obviously with other people there. So there's a, there's a place for the Our Father prayer when we're with other people together. There's also a place where you just go by yourself into your room and you lock the door. I am in my car a lot, so that's what I'm, That's my application. I go into your car, shut the door. An audience of one. Pray to an audience of one when you're praying. It's just the Father. I think of it like sometimes uh, if you really want to... Have a good conversation with your child. Then take your child out for a meal or hiking or something like that. Go to Pilot Mountain. Go uh, to dojos. Walk around the garden. Something like that. And, and just spend that intentional one-on-one time. Ask them you know, what, they, what, they're, what they love, what they're thinking about, how they're processing life. You know, go back into the past. Talk about memories. Talk about your favorite things. Talk about sports, uh, fishing, whatever it is you love. Um, that's what prayer is about you and your father talking about life together that's what prayer is, very simple and the secret rescue plan of Jesus was to come and take these performative prayers like us and make them into relational prayers where we actually want to talk to the father like he did and verse 6 says the father who sees in secret will reward you now of course that reward is not ice cream Or a raise or a crown in heaven. If that were the reward, it would be performative again. What is the reward? The reward is being in closer fellowship with God. It's intimacy with God. Whenever the New Testament talks about rewards in heaven, it'll use symbols like crowns. But really what it means is you're closer to God than ever. That you uh, the crown is like God is proud of you. I mean, I want more than anything in life... When I really want what I really want, should want, I want the Father to be proud of me. I want to please Him. And that's what the crown is about the pleasure of the Father. What you really want to do when you pray is to please the Father, to have intimacy with the Father. So just think about again, I ask again, how are you praying? Are you praying directly to God, with God, to God, and not? Not with a mask, not as a spectacle, not to be seen by anyone. Again, the story of Bible says, Perhaps I have to know a lot of difficult, clever words to pray. And then Jesus says, No, you talk to your dad like a friend. You don't, need, you don't need lots of difficult, clever words to pray. I know a lot of people, when people come to the prayer meeting for the first time and they haven't really prayed out loud before, and they're wondering kind of what, what words should I use, just use the simplest possible words you can. My favorite prayers are the prayers of people who are just beginning to learn to pray, and they're just talking like they would talk to anybody else. Very simply. It's, it's so tempting to just use like Christianese. Language that Christians only use. And use big words. Big Christian words. But this Lord's prayer that he gives us. Is incredibly simple words. It's childlike words. So that's now the second point. Relational prayer. A new way to pray where we say our father in heaven. And again remember the our, our part. This is to be prayed as a community. Some say it really should be called the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer. It's a prayer that he taught us as disciples to pray together, our Father. And um, it's, not, it's not supposed to be something we mindlessly repeat. That would just be him heaping up empty phrases again. If we were just to mindlessly repeat the our Father, like go say 20 our Fathers, that's just heaping up empty phrases. How is that not what he's talking about? That's what he's critiquing, is to say a ton of our Father's. Um, you know, when I was a high school coach, uh, high school basketball coach, a lot of people don't know this, and a lot of people like, who are really secular would, would hate to know this. But the reality is that in a ton of high schools, even public high schools, when those teams go out onto the field or come out of the gym, um, they say that our father. I don't know if you knew that, but, but a lot of a lot, public high schools, people, these teams will gather together and they will say that our father but of course, it's almost entirely performative. I mean, they would; these these kids would say it when I was a coach. I didn't even lead it. They said, "Coach, shouldn't we pray the prayer?" And I was like, "I didn't. What what prayer are you talking about?" And they're like, "You know, the one." And then they would lead the prayer, "Our Father in Heaven, help me." In the name, and they, they just did it like very. It just kind of mumbled really quickly through it. But it's not an incantation. Uh, it's not a spell. It's not like someone, something Harry Potter would, you know, would say, and that if you see the Harry Potter, the spells they say, they have to say these words just right, the right inflection, intonation. That's not what the Our Father is. It's more like bullet points, like a PowerPoint presentation, which I hate that analogy, because Jesus would never have done a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> but the point is, he knows what you need before you ask in verse 8. So it's a simple, uh, uh, an outline. Here are the type of things you want to talk about with your father when you pray. You don't have to say those exact words, but this is the kind of thing that you want to talk about. And he gives us uh, essentially four types of things to talk about. Uh, But remember, he knows what you need before you ask. And really the very first thing that he does is he wants us to talk to our Father. So he calls him a Father. And if there's anything about the Lord's Prayer that's important is that we are to call God Father. Father. And I don't know if you have a hard time saying father to God. And maybe because, again, your dad was a tough dad. Um, but Jesus wants you to remember who you're talking to. And it is a father. It's not the spirit of the universe. It's not You're not talking to the universe. You're not talking to Zeus or Thor or some kind of Greek god. You're talking to the one. You're talking to the father who would produce a son like Jesus. So if you, if you have a hard time understanding what the father is like, think about What kind of father would raise a child like Jesus? That's the father you're talking to. He's a good father. He's the father that, in the parable of the prodigal son, he runs out humiliating himself. He runs with his long robes out of his house. He's been looking for his son probably every day for years. When he sees his son coming from a distance, he runs out uh, weeping. He hugs him. He puts the ring on his finger. And he says, this is my son who is lost. Before the son can even repent, uh, he welcomes him back into his arms. That's the father that you're supposed to pray to, not the father you had, but that father. It's the same father that um, loves to feed the ravens and the sparrows. He um, he takes pleasure in the interior life of the smallest creatures that he made. It's that father. It's it's the father who enjoys uh, creating clothes for his flowers. he, he, it's like he's a fashion designer, like a Manhattan fashion designer. And the father loves to make flowers. Even the kind that just lasts for a day. Uh, he takes great pleasure. It's that kind of father. That you're, so if you can get in your mind who you're talking to, that takes you more than halfway there. Then you actually can pray. It's a father who says about Jesus twice, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. So when you start praying to your father... Put your name in there. This is my beloved daughter. And with her, I am well pleased. So before you start praying, you're already there. You're, you're under the pleasure of the one that you're talking to. And he's like, I want to hear anything you have to tell me. Anything at all. So that's the father. That's the first point. Um, if you've seen a movie or read a book with a good father, think about that person. There's a really crazy uh, anime film called uh, my, my Neighbor Totoro. Anybody seen that? really crazy movie. It's, uh, it's worth watching. It's, um, it's, a, it's a Japanese animated film, and it's about this, um, this professor who has these two daughters, his wife's in the hospital with cancer, and just the portrayal of the father alone. It's kind of a slow-moving, odd 80s uh, animated film, but it's beautiful. And the portrayal of the father, the professor, who is smart and he's strong and he's uh, reassuring, he's warm, he's very available to his daughters, he's jovial, He's laughing with them as he's playing with them, um, splashing them in the tub. He plays make-believe with them. They, they think they, they have this friend that's like a 20-foot you know, tall hamster. And, uh, the, the, and, the, and the dad is willing to play along with them at their game. So that's the kind of father uh, that, that rules the universe, whose merest whims generate the galaxy. That's the kind of father we have. And when you pray... You pray to that father. And the first request you make after calling him father is hallowed be your name. It's so important. The first thing you want to say to him is. I am amazed by you father. I respect you. As a friend of mine said we were once uh, going. It was a big group of us going in a van. We were driving down to New Orleans. And this guy and he's not the guy that I would have thought of would have said this. I was playing some music in the car by Keith Green. Everybody was making fun of my Christian music. It's kind of an old, goofy 80s artist, Keith Green, and all these guys were making fun of it. And then this guy says, I love that song because my dad loves that song, and I respect my dad more than anyone in the world. And I just silenced the whole band when he said that. Um, And it was just an incredible moment of vulnerability. But I thought, that's how we should think about the father. I respect him more than anyone in the world, and I will defend him to the death. His character. I love his character. Hallowed be your name. It's a type of parent that you want your friends to meet. Hallowed be your name is really a prayer for you, but it's a prayer for all of us. That more than any request I want in the world, he was alive, he that they would see that you are a lot better than they thought you were. That they would understand that the God of the universe is far more loving uh, than they could have ever imagined. That's, that's what we mean when we say, "Hallowed be your name." Let your name be holy, and honored, and weighty to people when they hear the name of the Father. So the second request is similar, but now it's not about His name; it's about, about His kingdom. Your kingdom come. Now notice, uh, let your kingdom come. That, that means that implies the kingdom's here, doesn't it? It's, pr- it's like that means it's already happening. Let your kingdom come. Let it keep coming. Let it keep coming. It's like yeast that goes into a dough or a mustard seed that turns into a huge tree. Uh, It it is not about praying for some distant final coming of Christ. It's not about that at all. Let your kingdom come means let heaven come down to earth now. Let us feel the presence of heaven here. He says in verse 10, let your will be done on earth, on this perishing earth. As it is done in flourishing heaven. So let the culture of heaven come down here. That's what it means when you say, let your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Means we're asking the culture of heaven to be made manifest on earth. Enact the reign of God, is what we're saying. And so um, that, that has been happening since the disciples started praying this prayer. Is that the ways of heaven... I mean, think about the greatest city you've ever been to and the worst city you've ever been to. Imagine the culture of that great city being infused into the culture of that really struggling city. And that's what it means. Let your kingdom come. Let the, let, let the will of heaven be done down here. There's a book uh, that I love called The Air We Breathe uh, by Glenn Scribner. Brand new book. And the whole book is about how because of the people of Jesus who followed him we have basically come to believe, like the air we breathe, we don't even see it anymore, but, but things like freedom, that, that humans, that we should be free, uh, that, that we should be kind to one another. The idea of progress, the idea of equality, even the idea of consent and compassion. These are all ideas that come out of the movement created by Jesus, the Jesus revolution. And that's the kingdom coming. That is the atmosphere of heaven, the culture coming down to earth And it's so now familiar to us that we don't even see it. It's like the air we breathe. Um, The the third request is an essential part of that culture of heaven, which is dependence and gratitude on God. Um, Verse 11, give us this day. Today, not tomorrow, but today's bread. Give us what we need right now. We need need something right now. You know, daily bread could be food, could be water, could be clothing, could be your car, your house, your paycheck. Whatever you, you need in the moment. It could be mental health. It could be the desire to sleep tonight. I need to sleep tonight. That could be, give me your daily bread. I mean, a lot of us don't actually fear going hungry, but think about what you do fear. What do you depend on? Maybe it's a grade, like studying well. Maybe it's a certain encounter with someone. Let this meeting go well. But give us this day our daily bread. The bread can be physical health. The, the bread can be your moment to moment sanity. Which a lot of us struggle with. It can be your emotions. Uh, give me today. Give me this hour, Lord. Emotions that are not going crazy. That could be give us this day our daily bread. But the idea is that the kingdom crushes meritocracy. Where we rank ourselves based on our merit. And what we've done. And what we've earned. And it says, no, it's, it's give us. We receive it gratefully. The kingdom of God produces gratitude. And it annihilates entitlement. And it makes us realize that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything I'm wearing, all the, my house, all the things in my house, my, my cars, my dogs—all of it is a gift from God. Completely, sheer gift. Nothing I earn. That's the culture of heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And it's—it's th- it's amazing to think about the Romans, the Roman Empire, which, which just—it was—it uh, it was built on pride. It was built on honor, of having honor. You seen the movie Gladiator? It's all about honor. And so the gospel comes in the Roman Empire and says that humility is the greatest virtue, not honor, not pomp and circumstance and puffing yourself up, but humility. That's the that's the culture of heaven. The Romans that took over the Roman world. That's the kingdom coming. Or then the uh, the very warlike, aggressive, um, imperious Celtic people in Ireland. Um, a, a, a bunch of they, they were slave owners, the Celts, and um, and the gospel comes there, the kingdom comes there, and they become the biggest bookworms in the world. They—they they create the Book of Kells. They're the ones that preserved civilization. Uh, they preserved ancient learning because of their love created by the gospel. Or you got know, the Vikings. The Vikings. Um, were by far the, uh, the the most imperialistic people uh, in the history of the world. They would they would raid from Denmark all all the way down into Italy. They got all the way down to Italy and they just raided all these places, killed, looted, stole. Uh, they they learned how to forgive. The Vikings learned how to forgive because of the kingdom coming as the culture of heaven broke in to those places, and they become some, some of the greatest missionaries in the history of the world. The Viking people. And that last one is really, really important. Because the Vikings, if anything, the Vikings did not like to forgive. And, and they were taught forgive. They, they were taught to pray. The Viking king, when he was converted, the very first one, was taught to pray. Uh, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's an incredible thing to think about this. A king like that. Um, this hardened soldier. Like if you've seen How to Train a Dragon. You know, the, that kind of father, that... That person learning to pray this prayer of forgive me my sins and I will forgive everyone else all their sins, verse 12. And I would say this gets to the heart of the kingdom because repaired relationships, that's what the kingdom's about. Repaired with God and then with one another. But that's what forgiveness means. It's if you're repairing your relationship. All the bitterness and all the hate that blocks relationship, all the unforgiveness, all of your clinging to um, whatever uh, someone has done to... To grieve you or to insult you, you're clinging to that, let it go. That's what this prayer says. Forgive us our sins, we forgive those who sin against us. Um, I had a heart attack. Uh, A lot of y'all know that. It was uh, about a month ago now. And um, it was 100% occlusion in a very large artery. I actually have four instead of three. And one of these arteries got totally blocked. And when that happened, I can tell you it was like massive pressure, like a vice grip right here. It was painful, it went down my arm. And, and it was like everything got tight. Uh, the pressure was huge. It felt awful. Um, and when they put, I could actually see the screen, when they put the stent in, they put it, this wire through my wrist into my heart. They, they put this uh, stent up there. They blew it up. It opened up the vessel. And all of a sudden, all the blood was rushing through it. It was just total relief instantly. I could see on the picture. All of the vessels turned black again. All the blood started flowing. And that stint going is is like take the forgiveness of when you forgive and and you get forgiven. Which is a simultaneous, it's like thunder and lightning. The second you open yourself to the world of forgiveness, all the pressure goes away. And you're free. And your heart's beating again. And the blood is flowing again. And notice the way that Jesus connects the human and the divine element. Because you can't have one without the other. This is really harsh, but he says in verse 15, if you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive you. Now, sometimes people think um, you're going to go to hell if you haven't made a complete moral inventory of everyone you've ever offended, and you, you make sure you've, you've forgiven them all who've, who've offended you. But it does not mean God is waiting until you forgive everyone everything, and then he will forgive you, because that would be performance again. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is it is relationally impossible. For forgiveness to go one way. You cannot claim to be experiencing forgiveness with the father. If you are not forgiving your brother. It's not possible. It's like the stint goes in. And, it opens and the blood is flowing everywhere. It doesn't just flow to this half of the body. It's everywhere. Or like a window. You cannot open up a window. And hope that the air only flows one way. It's going to flow both ways. The air inside can go out and out in. And when you open your world to forgiveness. It's going both ways. It's going both ways. It is morally impossible for forgiveness to only go one way. So that's what he meant. And if you have been forgiven by God a debt that is almost infinite. There's a parable about this. There's a guy who's been forgiven a million dollars. The king forgives him all that money. And then he goes and he chokes a guy until he paid back his debt. he The guy owes him like a hundred dollars. So if you've been forgiven a million dollar debt... It's not possible morally for you to then hold some guy's $100 debt over him. Um, The parable is saying, if you've really been forgiven by the Father, if you understand what you have been forgiven, then you will forgive everything. So the Lord's Prayer only makes sense in this relational universe with other people and the Father, and where you want more than anything for love to flow, and relationship to flow, which comes to the final petition I guess this is now the fifth one I said it was four but there's five petitions uh, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil which doesn't mean God's always trying to tempt everybody it basically just means protect us from temptation don't let temptation overtake us um, it basically means deliver us from pretending uh, that we are in relationship with you when we're really not that's what evil is Deliver us from autonomy. Deliver us from performance. This is from the Storbic Bible with this beautiful picture of Jesus holding a child, looking at the child's face, all the other children around the child. Uh, It's a great depiction of, you know, what prayer is really supposed to be like. And this is the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones translates this. Rescue us. We need you. We don't want to keep running away and hiding from you, Father. Keep us safe from our enemies. That's what it means to be delivered from evil. Now, how did Jesus deliver us from evil and blockage and autonomy and uh, living for ourselves? Um, He did that by himself experiencing total occlusion from God, complete blockage. This is the really amazing thing about the gospel. This is where it gets really... Uh, Exciting is that the gospel says, is the way that you get out of your relational darkness is because Jesus walked into relational darkness for you. It's this this great exchange. He cried out, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me? So that we could cry out, Abba, Father. He was abandoned by the Father so that we would never be abandoned by the Father. So that we could be brought into the relationship with the Father. And the uh, the last part of this shows this girl running into her daddy's arms. And this is how it ends. They did not need to hide anymore or be afraid or ashamed. They could stop running away from God, and they could run to him instead.
0: Remember, we love these rascals.